0: President and CEO of the Murti Law Firm, where we know immigration matters. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon in our regular conference call. Today's topic is analyzing the latest policies and regulations under the current administration. So in this second series, we discuss how the Trump administration's policy changes to immigration have greatly impacted how c- your cases are both prepared and filed, and unfortunately, the decisions that we're all getting. So we're going to talk a little bit about the rollout of these policy memos. With that, I'm going to ask Kevin to start with the suspension of the premium processing.
1: Thank you, Sheila. Yeah, I think it's uh, kind of good to talk about this new development before we talk about updating the or an update to all these different policy memos. So as I'm sure a lot of people are aware, starting on September 11th, USCIS suspended the premium processing service. And uh, currently, there are only two type, types of petitions that can still get filed premium processing, two types of H-1Bs. Uh, ones that are cap-exempt, and then uh, the ones that are uh, th- that are just not even cap-subject. And then the other ones are, if it's filed as a continuation of previously approved employment without any change, these go n- to Nebraska, and uh, these can still be filed in premium processing. If you file a petition as a change of previously approved employment or an amendment, Um, you know, maybe changing the SOC code, the work location, the wage level, because, you know, those are new things to deal with now. It really cannot be filed to Nebraska. And I think USCIS Nebraska Service Center is really, and we're seeing them in the cases, really looking to compare the old filing to the new filing to see if it was properly filed to Nebraska, because now there's all this incentive to file them there, since they're the only ones who accept premium at this time. I think it's something that people who are filing petitions should be – Uh, cautious about to try to employ the strategy of filing to Nebraska for the sake of premium. There's a lot of other variables that may make that not such a good strategy.
0: Okay. Thank (laughs) you, Kevin. So next, we're going to talk about the third-party placement of STEM OPT workers. And of course, we have very, very exciting news to share, which all of you, most of you on this call, hopefully are already familiar with. But you know what? Before that, I did made a... Huge faux pas because I did not introduce my two esteemed colleagues on this conference call with you guys today. With you all, I have Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney who's been with the firm almost 20 years at this point. Um, and you, many of you, may have consulted with him over the years. He's creative, he's brilliant, he's strategic, he's wise, and he's very funny and humorous, even in stressful times. Sometimes he will give it a spin and a weight so that to take a little bit of the bite off of you, which really helps um, when we're all dealing with the craziness happening to, in today's environment. And then of Kevin Andrews, who's been with the firm close to a decade at this point, uh, coordinating attorney for the H-1B non-immigrant visa department, brilliant strategic colleague who really cares about systems and processes and doing the best to get the best possible results. So, of course, as a team, we care about doing a great job for you all. So let's jump to the third party placement of STEM-OPD workers. So most of you know that the USCIS snuck in something on their website in January of 2018 of this year. And then when threatened with the lawsuit, um, I believe in September of 2018, um, they quietly removed, took down that section uh, which said that no third party placement uh, that stem opt workers cannot work at third-party placement off-site locations, which was a brilliant strategic win for ID Serve Alliance, uh, a consortium of IT consulting companies, usually generally small to mid size that have been very proactive and aggressive in ensuring that the government follows the laws and policies. And I am so thrilled, as their legal advisor, to have. Um, Generally, been a mentor and guiding them about the importance of suing the government and challenging the government whenever there's been a transgression or violation where the government is basically taking away your rights, issuing policy memoranda, doing crazy stuff that they shouldn't be, all in violation of the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law. And so, the impact to third party placements of STEM OPT workers well, USCIS still requires evidence of an employer employee relationship as well as the employer's obligation to provide training and oversight to its STEM OPT workers. Uh, sometimes the best strategy c- could be to withdraw the change of status request. example, STEM OPT valid until 2020 and H-1B cases being questioned regarding the STEM OPT employment at the end client site and possible maintenance of status. And if the training evidence is not very easily documented, it could be an idea to withdraw Just the change of status request, though sometimes we see that that's coming back with a denial of the petition and the change of status at times. So it's weird decisions and weird times uh, that you need to be aware of. Um, But it's certainly a strategy that has historically worked, though we're seeing pushback from the government even on that issue. Also, um, although there does not seem to be an increase in ICE enforcements or site visits, it's obviously a good idea to develop more robust on site training or move your STEM OPT workers either in house if possible or hire a senior person at the client site that or somebody that is monitoring them and it's not the client's senior person but your own as your company's senior person that's technically monitoring or that to establish the employer employee relationship. Okay, so we've done suspension of premium processing we've done third party placement update now next let's go to the february twenty second twenty eighteen memo which required contracts and itineraries for h1b petitions involving third party work sites Aaron
2: it's like almost like a year in recap is what it feels like um you know so for the for the contracts and itinerary requirement for h1 bs Uh, petitions involving third-party work sites. Since that memo, uh, USCIS is demanding three specific Mm -hmm. pieces of evidence for each layer. They're looking for signed contracts. They're looking for statements of work and purchase orders with specific dates, validity periods for the duration of the projects. And they're also looking to see signed letters that are confirming both the details of the projects, the job duties, and that there's an employer-employee relationship with the petitioner. Uh, USCIS is applying much more scrutiny to third-party placements in terms of EVC model, the employer-vendor-client model, where the more vendors that you have in between, the harder it is to produce the documents, the more difficult it is uh, to get an approval. Or conversely, the less layers you have in in between, the more likely that it is to get an approval. There is some alternative evidence that they'll take, uh, but if you're using the alternative evidence, You'll have emails, for example, from the end client either confirming the details of the project, or if you can't get that kind of email, at least something that states that they can't confirm it. Uh, It's best to have the email directly from the petitioner to the client. And the reason for this is to show that employer-employee relationship exists, that they can communicate with the end client even through the layers if it's something that's possible. Uh, Statements from the employees of the end client who work with the beneficiary confirming the details of the work. Essentially, what they're looking for is they're saying, if you are the employer and you're one or two layers removed from your employee and the work that they're performing, you don't get to see the day-to-day activity. So you can't confirm if it's a specialty occupation. You can't truly confirm if what they're doing and if you're controlling exactly how it's going on. However, if you have co-workers who are writing, um, who are writing letters or affidavits, or you have an end-client letter... That's something that documents clearly what the work is and helps them to establish uh, what they're looking for. Also for H-1B extensions, the memo notes that employers must be able to verify that the worker has maintained valid status throughout the entire period of H-1B time. So far, we've seen the USCIS ask for all the pay stubs since the prior approval and questions uh, questions whether the required wage was paid. And in some cases, the USCIS asked for all the previous, previous right-to-control evidence to show that the prior project existed after the approval. Nowadays, this can be an extremely sensitive issue if you're dealing with, as we mentioned, the FJs or Ms, the students on OPT or CPT. Because, as we'll talk about later on, this can lead to questions of status, unlawful presence, retroactivity, so on and so forth. So this part is kind of a very big deal. Yeah, it
0: almost almost sounds like when we see all of this craziness and this nonsense that is happening, uh, which only, I guess, when you're suing the government, you're winning cases because they know legally and procedure-wise, and they haven't issued regulations, and they haven't followed the notice and comment period, they haven't done anything they need to, that they backpedal very quickly. But many employers are, you know, understandably hesitant to sue the government because they're afraid of maybe first the cause, the concern, the pushback, the fear, the fact that they could be targeted in some way. But really, that seems to be one clean way that seems to be working Unfortunately, and I'm glad that ICID serve as a, a consortium is actually pushing some of those lawsuits because all of these in the terms of the delays, the shorter times, the, 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 the more roadblocks they're putting to approve it. And next is the validity period, which is only matching up to the datemen, date of the statement of work in some cases. So I'll have Kevin talk about it. So if they they're trying to deny it and if they can't deny it, they're approving it for such short periods of time that sometimes it might be meaningless.
1: Yeah, that's right, Sheila, and, and as you mentioned, there there is a lawsuit that was uh, filed on this particular issue. So, you know, documenting the project right to control at a third-party placement has been a chore for many, many years. This new uh, third-party placement memo makes it more difficult as Aaron mentioned to document right to control, but then the second follow-up issue is for how long. Uh, if I can show that there's uh, work that exists, how long can I get the duration in the past? Uh, If you could show a pattern or practice of renewal of these short-term projects renewed in three- or six-month increments, the government would give you the full three years, or maybe just at least the one year to document uh, uh, for for the H-1 validity period. Today, we're seeing more routinely that USCIS is matching the duration of the H-1B approval to the current SOW or purchase order. And not just that, because, you know, sometimes vendors have different extension periods than the clients, and I think what we're really seeing is USCIS going for the earliest possible date. So, if the vendor says the project's valid until 2020, client says project is valid until the end of 2018, you'll get, if they're willing to approve it, you'll only get until 2018. Uh, what's even more shocking and, and, and concerning is that sometimes we're even seeing petition approvals backdated which potentially causes status violations for individuals, and they have to travel and get a visa to get back into status. So we're seeing like a, a perfect storm in a lot of ways. We mentioned suspension of premium processing in the beginning of this discussion. And when you see the premium processing suspended, USCIS taking even longer to adjudicate the petitions and backdating the approvals, this becomes a recipe for disaster because we're seeing the petitions are backdated with approvals that are you know several months into the past. So then what happens when USCIS gives you an approval that's backdated seven months ago? Are you subject to the three-year bar now or, or, or what? So this is very disruptive, and I think that's precisely why there's a lawsuit already being filed on this because the the harm is quite pronounced and obvious.
0: Well, well certainly I'm sure the USCIS will try to take the position that You could be subject to the three-year bar, but the fact is, if you didn't know you were subject to the three-year bar because you had a petition that was pending till a particular date, at least you have the argument to make that from the day I found found out, out. from that day, the three-year, the 180-day unlawful presence clock should start from that day, not retroactively to a date I could have not even imagined. Sure.
1: The risk, though, with that, Sheila, is do I rely on that now when I travel? Because then I trigger the bar if it's the, the interpretation that I'm worried about, as opposed to the interpretation that I want. Because I have an I nine. But if it's seven months
0: already, what choice do I have? I'm already subject to a three-year bar, or potentially, in some cases, a ten-year bar.
1: Uh, well, I mean, on, you, you you could say on the one hand, I'm not subject to it because it, we go by notice date, and I think that's a fair that's a fair argument. But the concern would be well. Uh, if that's the date that I, I choose to start the unlawful presence and I just want to deal with this and travel and re-enter, uh-huh. what if I actually do that but then the government relies on the earlier date, the date that they backdated it to and it's been more than 180 days since so that date. So it depends on how so CBP is, exactly. de- how Department
0: of Homeland Security is training CBP and most times CBP doesn't even understand half of these issues and right. doesn't know what's going on and hopefully if you go, uh, the CBP is generally, I found mm-hmm. most agencies right now have been much more open Compared to the USCIS, which is supposed to be the main agency providing service mm-hmm. to employers and employees, but I mean, when it stinks from the top, as they say, the stuff rolls downhill. So right. there's a lot of rubbish rolling downhill.
2: And one, oh, I'm sorry, Oh No, no, I was just gonna, um, I was just gonna address the one thing is that, uh, is that I think they'd have to physically change policy and rules to identify the fact that if you have a period of authorized stay by virtue of a filing. And even if they backdated an approval to say that the backdated approval uh, retroactively makes a person unlawfully present for a seven or eight month period of time. And normally I would say, you know, Kevin, you're stretching it, you know, there's no way that could happen. But that FJM memo Mm -hmm. kind of puts it in different perspective because there they're saying we don't even have to identify that you were unlawfully present will wake up in six or eight months and say, by the way, you that had, action, you had right, an that, action that means, mm-hmm. which is questionable, but we're calling it unlawful presence. And so that retroactiveness, I think, is something that we do have to keep in mind. The Definitely. only good
0: to bless, I guess, the only silver lining in this horrible dark, thick, dark cloud is that every time there's a lawsuit and every time they lose it, they realize that if their policies and their processes and their memos and their guidance is so against common sense, good faith, their own law and the statute and the regulations that they're going to have to answer and maybe pay serious fines and penalties and ejo fees and all kinds of other stuff. And talking about, so well, before we jump to the FJNM memo, you know, there was that lawsuit where, again, IT Serve Alliance filed a lawsuit uh, challenging the USCIS for violating their own regulations because the law and the statute actually their own regulations require h1b extensions or approvals in 3 year increments if that's what the employer or petitioner asks but conveniently as kevin just explained they're giving it for 2 months 3 months 6 months which even the government doesn't know which h1 petitions they're going to review and if the way they're going about it they're not going to have any work then they're in violation because they're not employees they're contractors according to the law because they don't know what their guaranteed work or the guaranteed you know itinerary area the exact uh, s- item there, duration of the project.
2: And if you think how how just strange this is, you know I've been working for Sheila Murphy for almost twenty years. But if Sheila said to me, Aaron, this what are you going to be? What case will you be working on in six months? I'd have to say I have no idea. Are you going to be doing an H or an L or a CBP case? Are you going to be doing a surrogacy case? I have to say I have no idea. I know there's plenty of work and I know the work will be coming and I can rely on that, but I can't say which particular case or which particular project I'll be working on for six months. So why should that be different if you're employed directly for the company? or if you're employed as a consultant working at a third-party site. I think the standard should be the same, but here it's very clearly and different.
0: And I think that IT serve lawsuit really drives home the point and sp- spells out how ridiculous and ludicrous it is. And, in fact, the same regulations that they propose regulations that they rely on to deny other cases or RFE actually makes it clear that this should not even be an issue at all. Okay, so let's uh, next just, go to... I,
1: I just want to mention one last thing about this issue that... Um, and, and I don't know if you guys have something different, a different take on it, But until this lawsuit pans out and we get a little bit more clarity on this validity period, personally, I'm recommending clients file extensions based off of the work orders as opposed to waiting for the petitions to be adjudicated. So, for example, like, you know, fiscal year and the end of year is like a big time frame for uh, work order renewals. If we're filing an extension or like an RFE response with a work order that's valid until December 31st, 2018, and I know I'm not going to get a decision on this case until like February or March because of how long it takes – I'm recommending to that client to file an extension before December 31st with the updated work order, because if that first petition is only approved until December, they have a timely filed extension. Uh, so uh, that that's right now until I get more clarity on the validity I mean, that could be date. one
0: way that is being overly uh, careful, and it makes sense, and it's okay. It's cost time, money, effort, energy to file another um, suit, and I guess it depends ultimately how the government's going to pan down, but it is a very safe and conservative approach to take because now you're – Trying to avoid any possible unlawful presence keep with triggering the, period of the three authorized year, state. year continuous. Yeah. yeah, except that if the, if the uh, thugs uh, go back to a time in the past and say that the, it expired on a certain date and don't agree with it, it was valid till the date of the end of the work order, but some other cockamamie excuse that they seem to come up with to issue denials or shorter approvals, then we are going to have a potential problem. Okay, I know we could go on about this because it is very, very troublesome and worrisome for all of us as uh, attorneys, as employers, as businesses, as IT consulting companies. Next, let's talk about the update to the May 10th, 2018 memo which was requesting public comment for the accrual of unlawful presence and FJ for FJ and M non-immigrants. As you all know, the rule went into effect after it got the uh, comments etc on August 9th uh, and if you add 180 days to that it turns out and becomes February 5th of 2019 basically um, it's very worrisome because we don't really know how in the past they could go back and approve or de- determine that somebody was unlawfully present because the whole idea initially of the FJNM rule or the D/S was to be as generous and liberal to help kids uh, to enjoy the benefit of the D slash S interpretation. Now, with the government's new interpretation policy, it's actually become way worse than regular HL or other employees who have a date certain on their petition because then at least they don't trigger the unlawful presence till that specific date. Now here, it's so loosey-goosey. If you dropped out of class, if you didn't attend it, if you didn't, in their mind, maintain it, if you were traveling, if you were doing CPT, that technically wasn't properly blessed, even though it was authorized by the DSO, the government could come back and give you a hard time. And the recent development that we've been seeing is with colleges which have been suing over this memo, claiming that this new policy forces their students to drop out of this university or school, disrupts the students' education and causes financial harm to the school. So it's it's really uh, an issue that is interesting because, and I am so glad that maybe IT Serve Alliance and the technology com- consulting companies are giving, are inspiring the universities to now sue because still now universities were refusing to sue the government or being proactive. Now even they have realized that it is worthwhile challenging the government when they feel injustice is being done. Erin?
2: So, you know, the one thing that I just want to add here is uh, there's a real consideration where in the past you might have got a denial of the status and you got an approval of the H-1B petition, but a denial of the status. And in the denial of the status, it would just simply say the employer failed to meet its burden. You failed to sufficiently convince us that this person maintained status. It wouldn't make a finding that the person was out of status or not out of status. It just said, you didn't convince us that the person was in status, so we're denying the change of status to H-1B, but we're approving the petition. Uh, And people would come back to me, and they would ask, can I work? And I would say to them, well, you don't have any finding that you're out of status. Worst case scenario, you know, you've got the CPT, you've got the annotation on the i 20 Worst case scenario, you're in duration of status. It's okay to be able to stay and work. You've got a good, solid argument to be a basis for you to work. Now, if you receive something like that and and it says we don't have sufficient evidence to determine if you're in status, you almost have to default to instructing the person, make sure you leave the country before February 5th, before 180 days from August 9th. Because now you just don't know with retroactivity and everything else, saying to the person, oh, go back, you know, when your kids are out of school or go back, you know, in June or July or sometime that's more convenient for you. As long as the person's maintaining CPT, that convenience factor is completely gone because you risk unlawful presence.
0: Okay. Next, we want to talk about the June 28th, 2018, the updated guidance for the referral of cases for issuance of notices to appear or NTAs in so, cases involving inadmissible and deportable aliens. Aaron, again. Yes,
2: yeah, so I think this USCIS news release does has some some good news and refer in fact that for their, their policy does not seem to apply at all to the 129s at this time. But they are making it apply to the 539s, the change of statuses for, like, B1, B2 extensions or for the H4s and so forth, and also for I-485s. Now, we've not seen any NTAs or notices to appear being issued as yet. uh, um, In connection
0: with this memo. In
2: connection with this memo. But in some cap cases that were denied because of status issues, the decision says that USCIS can issue an NTA. Now, um, we've actually done a little bit of a deep dive on this. Just curious to see, can they really issue an NTA? and there's a lot of issues that are associated with them being able to issue an NTA. There's a Supreme Court case that came out that specifically said, if you're going to issue an NTA, you have to have the date that you have to appear before a judge, you have to have the time and the location to appear before the judge. So far all their NTAs that they're talking about, they write the words, to be determined. My understanding is that in uh, the Ninth Circuit, 1,000 of those NTAs were considered in, uh, incorrect. They were considered not, uh, not NTAs because they weren't and they didn't meet the uh, the legal and regulatory burden. Uh, also, there's a limited number of people with certain titles that are allowed to actually sign the NTAs. Those people with those titles are not necessarily sufficient to deal with the numbers that USCIS is talking about. I do think that besides the fact that what they're doing doesn't make a lot of sense, pragmatically, it is extraordinarily difficult for them to actually, uh, to actually implement this policy. So hopefully that'll have a big impact and prevent it from going forward.
0: Thank you, Aaron. Not
2: to
1: mention that immigration court's already the most backlogged uh, docket, you know, Yeah, in the and they're
0: cutting back on the number of immigration judges and putting quotas on how many cases they should approve at a time, and there's a lot of pushback from immigration judges and others. Um, I guess many of you on the call may not be aware of it because we as lawyers read about it, that immigration judges and generally the American Bar Association major organizations are very troubled that they are losing their independence and they are almost like herding cattle. They are being asked to process cases um, almost like cranked them out in, by the hundreds if not thousands at a time with very very strict quotas for immigration judges to make decisions. Next let's go jump to the July 13 2018 the issuance which gives the, the right to the USCIS to issue certain RFEs and NOIDS without uh, or, or, or make a decision and downright as I guess deny a case without an issuing an RFE or NOID?
1: Uh, yes yeah, Sheila so this is another uh, 9-11 uh, policy of this year where uh, USCIS is really technically restating an existing authority they have based on regulation, which gives them th- the discretion to deny a case without an RFE if the initial filing did not have the uh, sufficient evidence to determine whether or not the, the benefit was uh, should, should be granted or not. And uh, as people know, in practice, you know USCIS routinely gives uh, ben- petitioners an opportunity to give more evidence. Uh, The big question here is, now, now, to be clear, we have not seen cases uh, be denied without an RFE at this time. But it is, of course, giving everybody pause and thinking twice about how to prepare and file a petition with this new guidance that's only been with us for a little over a month now. Uh, Personally, I think that this is going to be really big for the next cap season because... um, You know, when we're filing extensions, we we are, because of this memo, we are advising clients to put something into the petition to document the existence of the project. Even if it's something just from the vendor right now, you know, again, right now we're not seeing RFEs saying, well, I mean, I'm sorry, decisions saying, we didn't issue an RFE because you didn't provide anything from the client uh... but i do think that in the cap cases when you're filing a cap case six months in advance and um... especially for the third party placement short-term duration projects i think it's going to be a real question for everybody to think about about uh... what would be enough to put into the petition my personal opinion is that until there's a lawsuit on this or some kind of uh... judicial clarity on this litigation clarity on this i think that it would be very dangerous to submit a cap case with like uh, zero supporting evidence from, if we're talking about third party placement, from either the vendor or the client. Uh, But I think it would be very difficult for USCIS, even this USCIS, to just deny the petition without an RFE if you gave at least some kind of good faith initial evidence uh, for the initial filing.
0: Okay. Aaron?
2: I was just going to say, this one's going to be a harder lawsuit to file because there is regulation on this particular point that does say that if you fail to provide the sufficient evidence for the officer to uh, either a sufficient, either you don't provide the initial evidence that's required by law, or you fail to provide sufficient evidence that at least gives the officer the inclination that they can approve the case, that the officer does have the right to actually deny the case. So this is a harder RFE because this is a harder lawsuit to file because of the law. If one was going to file the lawsuit, and I'm saying this because, yes, I'm interested, if one was going to file a lawsuit on this point, they'd have to compare this issue of third-party placement like any other employer and say, if I don't demand the employer like Sheila Murphy employing Aaron Finkelstein to produce projects to show that she can keep me employed, that the Murphy law firm can keep me employed. So, too, I can't have a double standard and show third party placements. They have to, but Sheila doesn't, for example. It has to be equal footing both ways through. And I think that would be the basis for a very good lawsuit here.
0: Thank you, Aaron. And, you know, I know we always try to monitor and stay within the 30 to 45 minutes each week, uh, or each time we do this each month, rather, for our monthly conference calls. Uh, But all of us, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, we've all seen more RFEs, changes to immigration policy over in the past year than maybe we've, at least I've seen in maybe 30 years. Uh, It obviously started with the Buy American, Hire American executive order of Trump, uh, and then with the focus that H-1Bs would be awarded to the highest paid and most qualified workers, leaving petitions filed with anything, you know, if it's anything with like a level wa- level one wage automatically resulting in an RFE or a denial and much higher scrutiny and more random approvals um, and a much higher denial rate. Though we did see a whole bunch of recent approvals, I guess, level one, but that was more um, civil. Uh, it, it was civil engineering as opposed to computer engineering, and not third-party client sites, which was still exciting to see a whole bunch of them get approved at the multi-law firm. The USCIS is especially targeting, like we all know, short-term third-party placements involving mid-vendors and vendors. And although the rubber really hasn't fully hit the road with all of these policy memos, because some of them are comparatively new, and we were hoping that since we had the first one and this is the second follow up that we would have a lot more that would have been changed or implemented in a way i guess it's good that it hasn't been as dramatic and there some of the changes have been somewhat positive in the sense that they haven't been outright issuing a whole lot of denials without the RFEs though i don't know the RFEs are really a double edged sword but We are clearly having to deal with a very negative climate and attitude by the government, by the Department of Homeland Security. And I guess that's where the flaw started is where USCIS became part of the DHS as opposed to being part of Department of Justice, because at least there's a superficial cloud of justice somewhere lurking there as opposed to. Homeland protecting the security and so using up all the money to hire more agents and more people to kick people out instead of trying to protect people and provide services, which is the job of the USCIS. But approvals are certainly much more difficult to obtain, if not impossible in some cases. And we are seeing that when there's pushback and I'm so glad the universities are pursuing lawsuits I know that one of the things that we absolutely are recommending to companies is if you have five or ten or 15 employees whose cases are being denied do not hesitate to sue because the government actually steps back and steps and is more afraid and nervous because they know that a lot of what they're doing is, in violation of their own laws and regulations. And so when you sue, they know that you're probably going to win. So they quickly backpedal and make the changes because they don't want to deal with a denial, which will then change policy for thousands upon thousands of future cases. And so I would certainly say that on the one hand, you don't want to be targeted and you don't want to do it as an individual, but prefer to go through an organization. But the organization may not be able to represent every single case and every single situation, whereas by filing the lawsuit, you might actually be protecting yourself and your employees. Aaron?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I agree with you, Sheila. We're definitely a nation of laws and a nation of laws. We need laws, we need rules and we need regulation just to have this country function. And um, I'm not a big believer in saying, oh, do away with the law, do away with the rule, do away with the regulation if it's helpful. But there's a lot of government overstepping that's going on. There's specific government targeting, not business, but models of business, types of business. The concept that they're overlaying buy American, hire American over every type of decision that they're making to the detriment of the United States is something that is very, very problematic. What we've seen and what we know is that in the past, employers were making business decisions to not sue people. It's easier to refile a case. It's easier to pay a premium processing fee. You don't know when lawsuits are going to end. You don't know if it's worth it to even go forward with it. And also, there's the aspect of retaliation. What we find in reality is quite the opposite. It seems like when an employer will take three or four cases and they're willing to file a lawsuit and to go forward with it, it's not something that's a detriment in most cases. It ends up actually being something that's a good business decision. The reason why it's a good business decision is it puts the government on notice that you're not backing down from these issues. And what we're finding is that on -on one-on-one types of issues, the government generally does not want to set precedent, so for the most part they're open to a dialogue and to a settlement if it's a reasonable type of settlement. I'm not saying a case that's horrible and should have been denied anyway they're gonna settle but I am saying there's a lot of cases where they're crossing a bunch of gray lines and those cases they certainly don't want a precedent decision to come out a decision that makes everybody else follow that decision to come out that says they're wrong they better back down they better do it another way so we're finding they're settling cases and we're also finding that if they settle those cases they're identifying the employers and they're saying we don't necessarily want to go down any kind of weird place with the employers. So I think it's time for employers to kind of think about it a little bit differently. You may need to think about it a different uh, a little bit differently, especially consulting companies third party placements.
0: That makes perfect sense. So believe in yourself, believe in your cause and I tell as I tell people, if you don't fight for yourself, who else will fight for you and for justice for your company, for your business, for your employees. So dig in your heels it's way cheaper than watching your business evaporate because that is what trump would like to have happen is all of the technology companies with third par- dealing with like you know third party placements they are really going after the companies and so it's extremely important and if you win 10 employees at one time 15 cases by filing a suit and then another time 15 and they may not because for them it's much easier to may your cases to win 15 rather than have a policy change that will impact tens of thousands of cases so you'll unfortunately have to chip away and it'll ultimately hopefully mean that they are backpedaling. If any one of us as employers or companies did half of what the government is doing in violating the law, transgressing, overstepping bounds, as Aaron described it, uh, we would be considered as having committed fraud or misrepresentation or theft. We would be in jail. It's amazing that the thugs get away with this on a routine basis, and it's really a shame because this is a nation of laws. This is a country that always believes in the rule of law and in the U.S. Constitution and it's a shame that we would have to but the good news still as i call it, call it the silver lighting in the in the black cloud is that we have the right to sue and every time we sue we seem to be making headway against the government. So hang in there, go out there, and together let's fight a good fight and continue to protect ourselves and our businesses and our livelihoods and not let any one person or the president or the government ever take away what belongs to us. It's still the greatest nation on earth, the United States of America, with an even greater constitution that we can all rely on. With those somber words, have a wonderful afternoon and uh, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.